This message by Zach Barnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. But we're continuing our series through this incredible book this morning, the book of Acts. The gospel is advancing. The Lord is at work. And it's a joy to consider uh, what it means for us today. This is God's word. I'm about to read. And God graciously through it, is going to address us this morning. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
There is no one who is ever beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. No one. I think that's the main point of our text this morning. No one is beyond his reach. No one is too far. No one is too hard. And God will always accomplish his glorious purposes, no matter any man's opposition. That matters for us. Saul was radically changed. He was powerfully but graciously confronted with the truth about Jesus Christ, who Jesus really was. And it changed everything for him. And amazingly, God is still doing this today. During a Sunday school class, In 1975, at a Baptist church in Missoula, Montana, there was a group of people uh, studying together and thinking about the Lord and His Word, and they were studying evangelism. And the Sunday school teacher was sharing how God can save anyone. He is able. He's strong in power. And he made the explicit point that there's no one God can't save. At that moment, one of the ladies named Bernie raised her hand and said, "Um, I know someone God can't save. And they began to talk about a young man who was very set in his ways, hardened in his heart, not looking for God, self-assured, living a hedonistic lifestyle, not interested in the least. So the teacher wisely said, well, we should pray for that man. And they did. And very soon afterwards, Bernie, the same lady that said this guy couldn't become a Christian, she was keeping his coffee cup filled as her husband was walking him through the Gospel of John. And not long from then, he was radically saved. And his salvation impacted the lives of some folks, even mine, because about 50 years later, He's been faithfully married for over 40 years. He's a member of our church. His family loves the Lord. He loves the Lord. And I got to marry his youngest daughter. Amazing grace. If last week we looked at God's goodness to save just one person, all that he will do to rescue the one. This week we see God's goodness to save the most unlikely of persons. All for his gracious purposes. No one is beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. You know, that includes anyone or whoever you're thinking of right now. May the Lord encourage us today. There's always hope in him. The gospel's spreading in the book of Acts. We're going to see it. You just, you can't stop it. You can't confine it. The work of Christ and his promise to reach the nations is being fulfilled. And God's saving this man, Saul of Tarsus, who is the Apostle Paul. Same guy. Hebrew name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. He is every bit a part of that. He is, the Lord said, a chosen instrument of mine. In fact, we could say today that Saul's conversion is the backdrop of our own because in God's good plan, is in his infinite wisdom, in so many ways, we are sitting in this room because God saved this man. And used him for his glorious purposes. He never fails. You know, this is not a story about how we are supposed to become Christians. If you didn't get knocked down by a blinding light or hear the audible voice of God when you were saved, that's okay. 
It's not a story of how we're supposed to become Christians. This is a story of God, how he works miracles, how he brings dead people to life for whatever purpose he has. We can trust him to do it. So we're going to look at this narrative in two points. One, God can save the most unlikely. And two, God can use whoever is willing. So number one, God can save the most unlikely. The first nine verses here, Saul encounters Christ. When we first met Saul, he was at Stephen's stoning, if you remember. He was not merely an observer either. He was approving what was happening. And nothing's changed. If anything, his intense opposition has only grown. Look again at verse 1 and 2. But Saul, listen to this language, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. William Kelly, a 19th century Bible scholar, he says this, the blood of Stephen, far from quenching the raging enthusiasm of the young zealot consenting to his death, had only stimulated him to dare unsparing violence against all men and women who called on the Lord's name. And now his unsatisfied zeal against the way induced him to chase the fleeing, scattered saints outside the land. That's what he's doing. He's fiercely opposed to Christ and his church. In chapter 8, we've already seen verse 3, what he's doing. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He describes it later saying it was in raging fury that he persecuted them, even to foreign sitters. Luke, Luke is using language to depict Saul's like this wild, ferocious animal. If you know the musical Les Miserables, it reminds me of Javert's chase of Jean Valjean. Javert's this officer of the law, and Jean Valjean's this escaped prisoner, and, and Javert is raging. He is undeterred in his mind, and it's all in the name of justice. A wrong must be paid for, and he'll do whatever it takes for justice to be satisfied. Saul felt the same way. It's why he's going to Damascus. He wants to sift out any belonging to the way. It's the first time that's used, by the way, of the Christian faith. The way. Referring to the way of life. The way of right relationship with God. In fact, that idea, what they were claiming, that idea is why Saul was so opposed to these Christians. They claim to know the way to God. Saul thought he knew what God was like. He was a Pharisee. He, he was this zealous observer of God's law, so much so that he found his identity in keeping the law. The meaning of his life was his own righteousness that he had worked to own. So when these Christians said things like, the way to God is no longer through this old covenant system of sacrifices and temple and the priesthood, but through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Saul was enraged. 
Because the law is clear. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And Jesus Christ was hung on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth. He was cursed. He's not righteous. He can't be righteous. And he's definitely not God because he died. This is how Saul's thinking. To claim him to be God would be blasphemous. The whole thing was just completely preposterous and ugly to Paul, to Saul. John Piper, who wrote the book, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, he said this, Paul had recognized that if this menacing Christian way were true, it would shatter his world. His world was one of works-based righteousness. This Christian way was grace through Christ. So he, he, in an effort to serve the Lord, he decided to seek out the church and destroy it. All these Christians. It was a 135-mile journey. It was a long walk. It would have taken about a week. And no doubt Saul had made all kinds of plans. Plans to get the right uh, papers demonstrating his authority. Plans to bring these uh, Christians bound to Jerusalem. Probably even made plans of where he might stay while in Damascus. You know what he didn't plan on? The sovereign grace of God. And that's exactly what he was met with on the road. Look at verse 3 again. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's literally knocked down by a blinding light. Later we learn it, it was a light that outshone the sun. If you've ever seen a lightning strike close to you, it's pretty intense. Not, not only do you hear it, but you see its brightness flash and it leaves a very powerful impression. You don't forget if you see lightning hit something. But it only happens in an instant. Saul's experience was several moments of that kind of intensity. He's knocked down and he hears this voice, but it's a voice of one who knows him. Saul, Saul. It's meant, the, rep the repetition is meant to communicate intimate knowledge. Like Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that always kills the prophets or later when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's intimate knowledge. And in that moment, Saul knows. He knows he's dealing with the Lord. But he is not sure anymore if he truly knows just who the Lord is. It's why he asks this question in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? He's thinking, I'm not persecuting you I'm persecuting these rebellious Christians. I'm persecuting and finding those who are actually opposed to you. I'm serving you, right? That's why Jesus makes it crystal clear. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, everything changes for this man. He's blinded. He's knocked down physically, but something so much deeper and more profound is going on spiritually. Jesus' answer hits him like a ton of bricks. Jesus is alive. You know what that means? It means he's the Lord. And more than that, 
Jesus so identifies with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. He thought he was defending God, defending the temple, defending the sacrificial system. He would anticipate being commended by God, not confronted or adjusted. But you know, this is no display of hateful fury. God's wrath would have been to let him keep on walking. This is God's wonderful, glorious grace. And the most formidable opponent of the church is saved. (laughs) What's the point for us this morning? No one is beyond Christ's reach. No one is beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. When God comes down, no one can stop him. You know, I know this seems radical and a wild conversion. It was. It was incredibly unique. But your conversion, my conversion, is no less powerful No less radical, no less intentionally done by our sovereign and loving and gracious God who sought us. He will save whoever he wants. (laughs) And nothing stands in his way. You know, there's great irony here. Paul, uh, just directionally, he's moving north. He's he's going towards Damascus from Jerusalem seeking to, to stop the gospel from spreading. But at the same time, we read just last week, the gospel's moving south. He's reached an Ethiopian. He's going down to Africa. You cannot stop this thing. In fact, you, the persecution that Saul, it's not just moving. It's not spreading in spite of Saul's persecution. The Lord and his wisdom, the church and the gospel is spreading because of Saul's persecution. God is sovereign. His gospel is unstoppable. So, Who in your life do you think is too hard? Too hard into the claims of Christ. A relative. Maybe there's a maybe you have an older child. I know some of you have this, an older child you've been praying for for a long time. Maybe it's a parent of yours, a co-worker, a friend. Who is it in your mind? Listen, no one was more hardened than Saul of Tarsus. No one was more opposed. No one would have been a more unlikely convert. So let's pray. Let's pray for them. Let's trust the Lord that that no one's any match for his sovereign grace. There is another warning for us here. In Saul's example, because deep down Saul believed something about God. He was sure of it. But it was a God of his own making. He did not serve God for who God had revealed himself to be. He was truly, at the end of the day, serving himself, thinking God was what he wanted God to be. But God had mercy on Paul. He broke into Saul's world and he revealed himself as he is, and that's what's changed him. You know, you might have believed in God all your life, but conversion truly happens. Conversion only happens when we realize We're dealing with a God who's not the way we want him to be. But he he is the way he is. And he has always been. And he will never change. That's what changes us. We know Saul was immediately changed because he obeys Christ's command. He's not scoffing anymore. He's submitting. He's humble. John Stott says this in his commentary. "He, He who had 
expected to enter Damascus full of pride and power as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. There could be no misunderstanding what had happened. The risen Christ had appeared to Saul. After this revelation, which was, which was just for Saul, verse 7 tells us the men that he was with, they didn't understand what was happening. In verse 8, let's look at that again. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Three days, imagine that. During these three days, no doubt, Saul was wrestling, repenting for sure of his opposition to Christ, recognizing himself as the chief of sinners who once persecuted God's people and God himself. But you know what else was probably happening? He was probably beginning to piece together all he knew from Scripture about who Jesus actually is. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He he is the seed of Genesis. He is the perfect son of David. He probably began to see all the Old Testament sacrificial system must have always pointed to this perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And since he was raised from the dead, Jesus must not be cursed. He must be righteous and therefore a perfect sacrifice high priest for us. And for the first time in his life, Saul probably enjoyed true access to God and fellowship with him through his Savior, Jesus. Jesus made the point crystal clear, to persecute his people is to persecute him. You know, that affected Saul. In the New Testament, in Christ, became the Apostle Paul's favorite shorthand for what it means to be a Christian. Maybe this is why, because Jesus so relates to us this way. Listen, Jesus' attitude has not changed. You are never alone. You are never alone. You're never alone in your persecution. You're never alone in your sufferings. Jesus is with you. He so identifies with you. Yes, surely, Saul was repentant, but he must also have been worshiping. That same mouth that had been breathing out threats and breathing out murder was now breathing out praise to God. No one is beyond his reach. Spurgeon says this, The glory of the gospel is not that it paints ravens white and whitewashes blackbirds, but that it turns them into doves. It is the glory of our religion, not that it makes a man seem what he is not, but it makes him something else. It takes the raven and turns him into a dove. His ravenish heart becomes a dove's heart. It's not the feathers that are changed, but the man himself. That's what the Lord does. May he give us great expectations. Let's hope in him. He can save the most unlikely. Secondly, God can use... Whoever is willing. Beginning in verse 10 down through 19, Saul encounters Ananias. Let's look back at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias is a great character. Uh, one commentator called him the A forgotten hero of the New Testament. Because we don't, we don't see him do anything else for the rest of the book of Acts. He was a faithful, ordinary Christian. And God used him in a really profound way. Notice as soon as God called Ananias, his response was, Here I am, Lord, ready to serve. He really is. He's eager to serve, but then he hears what the Lord wants him to do. (laughs) Go lay hands on Saul that he might regain his sight. And in verse 13, Ananias basically begins to ask, you sure? Let's look at that. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Here's what's wonderful. God has just done a mighty work in Saul's life. And he's about to do a great work in Ananias' life. He's always at work doing good. God does all the initiating in salvation. And we get the joy of participating. He gets all the glory. In his mind, for Ananias to go meet Saul is to be arrested by Saul. It's a suicide mission. Just like Saul thought, though, that he knew how God worked, so did Ananias. He he had his own idea of how God did things, but the Lord lovingly confronts him, too, with the truth of who he is and what he does. Look back at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Isn't that gracious of God? Ananias is afraid. But the Lord doesn't just tell him, go, do it anyway, get over it. No. The Lord lets Ananias in on his purposes, and it helps assuage his fears. God is at work. He's he's always doing good. You know, the fear of man hinders our ability to minister to people. When we are afraid of others, we will not love them like we ought. We will not love them enough to do what's truly good for them. We will not love them enough to serve them well, to speak the truth in love. and Instead, we'll love ourselves more than them. There's this great verse in Isaiah where the Lord says, I I am he who comforts you. This is chapter 51 of Isaiah. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Or the son of man who's made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, Ananias had to learn this in order to serve God's purposes. So do we. This teaches us something. We can be like Ananias. Maybe we feel like we know the Lord's called us to do something, but maybe he's not aware of all the details. 
Maybe he's not, he's not aware of how hard it might be for us to do this thing or what are the potential consequences of doing this might be, how this person might respond, what issues could possibly come up. We should trust the Lord to equip us for whatever he's called us to do. He will. Let's just seek to be willing because God can use whoever he wants for whatever he wants. Bill Bright, one of the founders of Campus Crusade for Christ, this international uh, collegiate evangelistic ministry, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness late in life, near the end of his life, and uh, he had an interview with a Christian magazine. And, And during the interview, they asked him, Bill, do you feel like you have fulfilled the purpose for which you were put on earth? And his response God doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. (laughs) God made us in his image, and he loves us, but he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So it's not as though my departure is going to leave a very big hole. (laughs) I think there's so much freedom in that attitude and in that way of thinking. It doesn't demotivate either our work to serve the Lord. It empowers it. You know, you know where joy in serving the Lord comes from? It doesn't come in analyzing, well, what do we bring to the table? That's actually pretty discouraging. We're all twigs on a tree, right? What gives us joy in serving the Lord is that God chooses whoever he wants for whatever purpose he has. He empowers. He enables. And you know, it's not too late. If you're sitting there wondering, can I still serve the Lord? It's not too late. You haven't forfeited this. If you are in Christ, you've not missed your chance. God can use anyone who is willing. He, he doesn't just meet the brilliant ones. But the, the one who's joyfully, humbly, going along in simple, ordinary path of obedience. Let's just be willing. Let's be faithful. We, we just, let's just decide to die to ourselves and see what the Lord might do through us. And trust him for it. So where, where do you lack faith for what the Lord has called you to do? Let's be reminded this morning of the power of his sovereign grace. He who promises faithful. He'll surely do it. God tells Ananias to go to this street called Straight. It's one of the oldest continually occupied streets in existence. You can still see this street. And he tells Ananias he's going to find Saul praying. J.C. Ryle, in his book, A Call to Prayer, he, he talks about how a man can preach from false motives. A man can write books, and he can make good speeches, and he can seem to do a lot of good, but still be a hypocrite and self-serving. Then he says this, but a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. The Lord himself has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. When he sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, he gave him no other evidence of his change of heart than this. Behold, he's praying. God changed Saul. And God commissioned Saul. The one who cursed God's name will now carry God's name to the Gentiles. The one who came to wipe out Christ's name will now bear Christ's name. 
Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name and he's going to suffer for my name's sake. You know, this is a moment that really sets up the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see this play out. We're going to see this commission that the Lord's given Paul play out for the rest of his life. Bearing Christ's name. Suffering for Christ as he goes forward with the gospel and as the gospel advances. But maybe you wonder, why does the Christian life have to include suffering? Couldn't it have just been a commission of go tell everyone and they're all going to believe you? Because in God's wisdom, we follow a suffering Savior. And a servant is not greater than his master. We, we follow a suffering Savior who bled and died and bore God's wrath so that we could live for him. That's what it took And living for him, therefore, always means dying to self. The invitation, the gracious invitation that the Lord gives us is not to save our lives. Go save your life because ultimately if we do that, we will lose them. Rather, his invitation is to lose our lives for his sake and the gospels and that's how we'll find them. Ananias was gripped by this in this moment. He was gripped by what the Lord was doing through, the, through Saul and gripped by this cause that was greater than himself. So he obeyed and he got to participate in a remarkable moment. Look back at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In a courageous act of kindness and obedience, Ananias goes to Saul and he touches him. You know, Saul's blind. is an act of kindness to touch him and show that he was there. It was an act of kindness. And, and then Saul hears probably the first words he heard from another Christian after his conversion. Brother Brother Saul, the arch enemy of the church, now received as a brother. That's what the gospel does. It's powerful. It is powerful. Spurgeon, again, he says this, There is nothing that makes us such brothers as the gospel. Even the hardest heart can be softened. And the most formidable opponent can become a servant of Christ. Ananias was willing to be used by God. He was eager to be used by God. And he was allowed to enjoy one of the most amazing moments in church history. Let's look again. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his, from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul was baptized. (laughs) It's an incredible moment. J. Gresham Machen says this, there there was no reason for the conversion of Paul. (laughs) Everything pointed the other way. But Christ chose to make of the persecutor an apostle. And the life of Paul was the result. It was a divine, inexplicable act of grace. 
Grace to Paul and grace to us who are Paul's debtors. God's at work. God has always been. He's faithful. And he will always accomplish his purposes. There were certain things in Saul's mind that God simply could not be before he was confronted with the Lord. He, he couldn't, Saul thought he could not be a man from Nazareth. He could not be so weak and come from such obscurity. He could not be so rejected and despised among men. He could not die a sinner's cursed death. But on that road to Damascus, Saul was confronted with the unshakable reality that God not only could be those things, but Jesus was all of those things, and yet he was alive. Risen from the dead was himself God, and it transformed everything. And what's amazing, that the man who was breathing threats and murder against the church just days later is proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't just go from scoffer to saint. He became a great pastor, shepherd, and author of Scripture. What does Saul's story teach us? It teaches us that God is not to be confined to our definitions. To give us eyes to see him, not as we want him to be, but as he is, which is always better. For God, 2 Corinthians says, Paul wrote this, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One of the great lessons of, of Paul's conversion is that no one is safe. No matter how violent their antagonism to Christ, no matter how secure someone imagines themselves to be from his truth claims or his summons to believe in him, they are not safe. No one is safe because God can save anyone. The Lord himself interrupted Paul's hellbound race and he's still doing it each and every day in the lives of sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. And listen, if he's done it in your life, may you be filled with fresh gratitude. God has done it and he will complete the work he began. No one is beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. He wrote, Paul wrote this to Timothy later on in his life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If the Lord has done all that, shouldn't our glad response be to serve him no matter the calling? The, the blue angels uh, the, the pilots of the Blue Angels, those, those airplanes, they're the highest performers in the military. They're in the Navy. And every time they do one of those flight shows, they film it, and the, the uh, first lieutenant or whatever it is who, reviews, who leads the team reviews the film with the other pilots. And he'll mark out all the mistakes they made, even the slightest mistake, uh, through the show. These are the highest performers. 
their standard response every time he marks out a mistake. Thank you, sir. I'm just glad to be here. I think it's a wonderful attitude we ought to have. Lord's brought us in to his saving grace. Let's be used by him for his own ends. Whatever that means, we're just happy to be here. May we serve the Lord in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that no one is beyond the reach of your sovereign grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are powerful and mighty to save. And we trust you for that, Lord. Anyone who, I pray, if anyone who's come into our minds this morning who we have prayed for, maybe we have lost hope for you to do a work in, Lord, I pray you'd have mercy. Lord, I pray you'd fill us with, with fresh passion and zeal to pray to you and to ask you to do what only you can do. No one is any match for your sovereign power and grace. You will accomplish all your purposes, so help us to trust you, Lord. And I pray more people would come to know you, more people would put their faith in you, and we'd have the joyful privilege of being part of that transformation through our proclamation of who you are. Lord, help us. I pray for any who feel weak, too weak to serve you. Lord, strengthen them with your power and make it perfect through our weakness. Receive all the glory, God, through the way you mightily work to accomplish your glorious purposes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Zach Farnell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.